uh, in our series in Numbers to uh, uh, chapter 33. At the end there, verses 50 through 56, that text is printed in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, Numbers uh, chapter 33, verses 50 through 56. This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess, to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans to a large tribe. You shall give a large inheritance and to a small tribe. You shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit it. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So, uh... Our house is in a neighborhood that has a lot of trees. In fact, our yard has lots and lots of trees. And I have a mixed kind of uh, relationship with the trees. On the one hand, they provide a lot of shade. On the other hand, it's difficult to grow things in the shade. So over the years, we've lived there now, uh, uh, 24 years, uh, what we do, uh, I've discovered that there's a kind of plant that I can plant in the front yard of the house uh, that gives some color. It's a plant called coleus. Uh, they don't really bloom, but the leaves are brightly colored and, and that kind of stuff, and they, they do really well in the shade. So I plant those, and I have to do that because we have a summer inquires weekend, and people come to my house, and, you know, they have to see that the pastor has a beautiful yard. Right? And the pastor does a good job in his yard. It's important. So a few weeks ago, I went to get the newspaper, and I began to notice as I looked at the bed that something was eating the coleus. Devastating. So one of my favorite verses in the Bible is from the book of Jonah, and that verse is, God sent a worm. (laughs) God sends worms to me all the time. God sent a worm to Jonah to eat the vine that he was shading in, and it infuriated Jonah. So God's in the business of sending me worms all the time. So I assumed that what God was doing was sending me a worm. You know, this time a real worm, not a metaphorical worm, right there in my flower bed. But lo and behold, it's not a worm. It is a plague of bunnies. We are overrun with rabbits in our neighborhood. Now, where I grew up, we have ways of dealing with rabbits (laughs) that are unacceptable in suburban Henrico County. And so this provides us with a challenge of what to do about the bunnies. And so uh, Marty Googled it immediately because she doesn't want me doing anything to get arrested over bunnies. And so... Uh, we're squirting vinegar around the flower beds now 
to discourage the bunnies. Now, the problem with this is not the bunnies or that they're eating my flowers. The problem with this is what it did to me. It infuriated me. It made me sad. And frankly, it was threatening. Not because bunnies are eating my flowers. I don't really care about that. I only plant those so that when you come to my house, you'll think well of me. And the bunny is robbing me of that. That is a revelation of what goes on in our hearts, isn't it? Right? What exactly is happening in a human being such that his week is ruined because a rabbit ate a flower? Right? Not so much that the, that the flower matters, although I think, you know, that's, it's pretty terrible, or that our neighborhood is overrun with rabbits, but my heart is overrun with something that's not good. So, this text that we've read uh, today, uh, you can go ahead and put my notes up there, Liz, seems to be about war, and it certainly uh, is about war, but more than that, it's about worship. And that's it's something that is probably that uh, uh, is hard for us to think about, because the issue before us, and, the, and in fact, maybe the most important issue before us is, is who or what do we worship, Right? What captures our affections? What is captivating to us such that when it is taken away from us or uh, removed from us, we're undone, right? And so that's exactly what God is getting at in this text because he knows what we are like. He knows that we are made. We are created to worship. We are created to give our hearts away. We are created uh, to have affection for things, to, to have desires for things. And as a result of that, uh, that matters so much. And so while we read this text, and it's certainly clear uh, that God is warning the people about the people who live there uh, in uh, the neighborhood that they're about to move into, what he's more concerned about than anything else is not just those inhabitants, but the the culture that those inhabitants have, the, the, the gods that they worship, and uh, the things that they love. Because he knows his people will be prone to give themselves to that. And one of the ways that I can tell you and I can demonstrate to you that this, this text is less about war and more about worship is, look at the way uh, God speaks. He says that the inhabitants are to be driven out, right? While the figured stones, the metal images, and the high places are to be destroyed and demolished, right? So we know that the people failed in this. But we also know that the people, that if there was anyone there in the land of Canaan who said, you know what, the living God, the real God, that God is my God, they were immediately incorporated into the community. And so while it was important to drive the inhabitants out, what was even more important was that the vestiges of idol worship and the vestiges of the false love that was given to these other gods had to be completely eradicated. Now, we hear that and we think, oh, that is so harsh. You know, that is that is not the God I'm interested in. That's, you know, that that's that's just very difficult for me to get my brain around. But 
but you see, what you should think about when you hear these words about driving out and smashing and demolishing, it should remind you of the gentle Jesus. Jesus strides into the temple and he sees the money changers and the merchandising and all of those things that are going on that are stealing from people and profiting against people and, and, and that the, the worship of God there is being compromised. So what does Jesus do? He drives out the money changers and the merchants and he destroys their tables and their merchandise, right? Such a shocking picture of us of, of this, that, that Jesus would be so concerned, so driven uh, to have zero tolerance and have a certain ruthlessness about the way in which he uh, sees uh, worship and sees the effect that false worship, sees the effect that this, this is having upon the people. He's not having it, and he's going to root it out. He is going to move these people out of here, and he's going to destroy uh, the things that they are uh, selling there. And so before we think, oh, that's some kind of weird Old Testament thing or something like that, we need to see the heart of God here, that God understands who we are, how we are made, and he understands that our hearts and our affections will go after anything or anyone that seems to be worth our love, our affection, our desire. Next slide. So, what, when the people receive their inheritance, when they settle in the land, who will they love and who will they worship? And that question, frankly, is, is probably the most important question we can ever uh, ask or answer. Discipleship, following Christ, learning, reading, studying, all of those things uh, really are not so much about giving us information, although it's important to have the right information. What God is more concerned about is who do we love? What do we love? What has our affections? What is it that, that makes our heart beat a little quicker? What is it that, 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 we, uh, uh, that we want above uh, everything else, right? So the answer to that question will determine whether the people of God remain distinctive or whether they will become just like the idol-worshipping inhabitants of the land and then be driven out as well. And so this is, this is a, uh, this is a shocking passage to us because it, it's very clear to us that what God wants the people to do, that when they enter into the land, that any vestige of, of this false worship, any part of this, this community that would detract the people or distract the people from, from real worship, from loving the God who, uh, created them and redeemed them with their, uh, all their heart, soul, and mind has to be eradicated. So there's a certain ruthlessness and desperation in this practice, right? Because God realizes that if they are not faithful to do this, then um, life will be very difficult. And in fact, that they will fall prey to this. So this is why this is less a war of conquest and more a war about affection. And that is, you know, I mean, think about the things that you might go to war over, right? What God is willing is telling his people to go to war over that which might threaten their love for him, their single minded focus upon him. So why such ruthlessness? Why? Why would God be like this? Next slide, please. Um, because as we think about this, we think, you know, if you're like me, one of the things I think is, well, idol worship is really stupid, Right. 
You, you, you see, you hear about people, you know, who, who, uh, uh, even today who will, uh, place fruit at the foot of idols or, or feed idols milk or, or do those sorts of things. And we see that and we think that is so ludicrous. Who, who would do such a thing? Who, who would give themselves over to something like that? Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is that there must be some sort of attractive and destructive power in the worship and effective uh, giving given to these other gods. Now, the, the the thing about it is, when we think about this, if we look at this, this is this is something that just seems so hard for us, right? But the fact is, you and I are looking for something to love and to give our hearts to, and sometimes we don't even know we're doing that until we feel the pain of the smashed idol. Francis Schaeffer said, uh, oh, gee, almost 50 years ago, that the uh, idols of America are personal peace and affluence. I, I want to tweak that a little bit because I think about myself in that as uh, my idol uh, is peace, i.e., leave me alone. I want to be left alone. I don't want to be bothered and smooth. I don't want anything to interrupt the comfort and the steady pace of my life, right? I like things to be smooth. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want difficulties to come my way. The reason why I know this is because when things interrupt my peace or when things interrupt my smoothness, and that's one of the reasons why I, I personally pursue affluence is because affluence, though, though you know, is kind of a... You know, an ugly thing, we don't really like to talk about it, but it can buy you a lot of peace. And it can buy you a lot of smooth. Right? Right? And the reason why I know this is so important to me is when things come along and interrupt this, I am devastated. I'm undone. I get to work very early. Not because I'm a good worker, but because nobody else is here. I can be left alone. The reason why I know that that's what the motivation of my heart is, is when that gets interrupted, it's bad. Just ask Ann and Kristen about that. When they text me to say, hey, when you get there this morning, so-and-so is going to be there. Would you deal with that? It goes really well. So, uh, yeah, it does not not go well at all. Uh, God sent a worm in the person of you to interrupt my quiet, productive moment here where I can be left alone and do what I need to do. I'm devastated, angry, surly, difficult, and it wrecks my day. Literally, it wrecks my day. So that tells me something about that. Is that a good thing to do to have some quiet time in the morning? You bet. But the fact is, the way I know that I have latched my affection on it too much is when that goes away, when it's smashed and it's destroyed, I'm undone, right? So we're looking for something to love and give our hearts to. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing that until we feel the pain of the smashed idol. Because smashing the idol is often stinging and painful, right? You know. You know what it's like to... 
to have set your affection upon something and believe that this is, is going to get you some, some life and, and get you where you're going to go and suddenly it doesn't work out. Next slide, please, Liz. So these idols, you know, we read about them here. They're, they're poles and high places and figure stones, metal images, that kind of stuff. What is it about these idols that's so attractive? Well, the idols that the Israelites were to destroy were idols that primarily provided fertility, both for the land and for the people and animals. Worship these idols, and they would remove the risk and tenuous nature of life. Now, one of the things that you have to see about that is that as an, in an agrarian culture, in a culture that's built upon uh, agriculture, um, you know, one dry season and you might starve. And so if you have this God that, that you can give something to, you have this image that you can worship in a certain way, and he says to you, listen, I will make all of your animals uh, uh, fruitful, I will make uh, it rain, I will make all your crops come up, I'll even make your wife fruitful, I'll even make it so that you can have lots of kids to work the farm. Life is hard, there's a lot of risk, Things go wrong, and what this idol says, if you will serve me, if you'll do what I want you to do, and you'll, you'll give me this and provide me for this, then I'll make sure it rains the appropriate amount. I'll make sure that all of your animals are healthy. I'll make sure all of your children are healthy, and I'll make sure everything grows and you prosper. Now, that sounds like a great deal to me. Because there's a lot of risk in life. There's a lot of things that go wrong. There are recessions. There are downturns. There are uh, worms. There are bunnies. There are all these things that, that mitigate against us being prosperous. And so here's something that says, hey, you can see me. I'm this pole or this statue or whatever. And I will... Make an exchange with you. If you'll do these things for me, then I will guarantee for you affluence, success, peace. Right? So these idols that we're talking about here are not, are not something that, that they're attractive. You know, they're, they're not, and, and the thing that they, they promise is exactly what we're looking for, some sort of escape, some sort of way to mitigate and get away from the fact that the world is tenuous and difficult and things go wrong, right? And if I can, just, if I can control this by my giving something to that, if I, can, if I can set up a means of exchange between me and this idol, that if I do this, then it does this, then I can begin to predict the future and I can, I can begin to control this thing that has... My affections. But they exacted quite a price. So the Lord said that, that these remaining idols and their adherence, and the adherence would be as barbs in their eyes and thorns in their sides and trouble where they settled. See, God sees who we are and understands exactly how this functions for us. And so what he does for us and how he deals with us is he says to us, listen, you know what? These things are so attractive and your heart is so fickle and your affections are so fickle. You'll go after this and you'll forget me. Now, for most of us and probably most of these people that received this message, what what they what they really had to be guarded against was not so much deserting the God who had delivered them, uh, but having that God and these other gods as well, just to continue to hedge their bets. Right. But the Lord's not having it. He says these remaining idols and their adherents 
would be as barbs in their eyes, thorns in their sides, and trouble wherever they settled. Right? Next slide. Um, bear with me as we read this quote from uh, my friend uh, Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon. He said this, and one of the things that struck me about this today is one of the ways you can know that the, there's a myth out there that says human beings are getting better, progress. You ever heard that? You know, we're getting better and better all the time. Every day in every way, I get better and better. You know, they'll put that on my tombstone. <laughs> yeah, except it didn't work, right? So, but but the fact is, uh, God's telling the people about idol worship here in Numbers. Charles Spurgeon preached this sermon in the 1850s to people about idolatry. And so I know you think idolatry is not your problem. I know that. Right? We don't, we don't think that's our problem. So um, it's difficult for us to, to kind of come to grips with this. Idolatry is the sin of the entire human race. When we speak of idolatry, we need not think of blocks of wood and stone and men bowing down before them, for our native land swarms with idolaters. Neither need you go into the streets to find them. Stay where you are and look into your own hearts and you shall find idols there. This is the one easily besetting sin of our nature to turn aside from the living God and to make unto ourselves idols in some fashion or another. For the essence of idolatry is this, to love anything better than God, to trust anything more than God, to wish to have a God other than we have, or to have some signs and wonders by which we may see him, some outward symbol or manifestation that can be seen with the eye or heard with the ear rather than to rest in an invisible God and believe the faithful promise of him whom eye has not seen nor ear heard. Let's go back to the previous slide. Um, you've heard, and you knew I was going to say this, to love anything better than God, to trust anything more than God, right? When I hear that kind of language in church, I go, yeah, sure. So I do that all the time, right? Um, and so we make our peace with it. Um, I can tell you that it would not be a peaceful thing if I go to my wife and say, I love this other woman more than you. Next, go, back, go forward to, in the slides, right? In some form or other, this great sin is the main mischief in the heart of man. And even in saved men, this is one of the developments of a remaining corruption. We may very easily make an idol of anything and in many different ways. No doubt many mothers and fathers make idols of their children or make idols of the desire for children, right? And so many husbands and wives idolize each other. And we may even make idols of ministers. Now, we need more of that sin around here, right? Um <laughs> Even as there were idle shepherds of old, equally is it certain that many a thoughtful man makes an idol of his intellect and many another makes an idol of his gold or even of that little home where he enjoys so much uh, contentment. 
But men who are better instructed often take the Bible and read it, and failing to get through the letter into the Spirit, they trust in the mere act of Scripture reading and make even the Word itself to become an idol to them through their resting in a mere creed or in bare Bible reading and not pressing through it to spiritual, hearty worship of God himself. Even our spiritual disciplines can do that. Anything, however holy, which comes between us and the personal dealing of our soul with God as he is revealed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus by faith and love and hope becomes an idol to us. Now, in the Lutheran tradition, Lutheran pastors preach the same sermon every Sunday. Did you know that? And what it is, is at the beginning of the church, at the beginning of the service is law, conviction, law, conviction, law, conviction. To make you despair of your ability to do anything about this. I want you to have a sense of desperation and ruthless fear of the idle factory that is your heart. And I want you to see it as so profound and so powerful that it scares you, that it alarms you, and it makes you look for any way in which you could deal with that. So here's the hope that we have in that. Liz, next slide. Right? So our confidence today, another quote from Spurgeon is, little children keep yourselves from idols was the injunction of the loving Apostle John, and he wrote thus in love because he knew that if God sees us making idols of anything, he will either break our idols or break us. What a merciful God who loves us so much that he is willing to cause us the pain of the destruction of our idols so that our affections would not be alienated from him. And even more so, if our idol will not break, he will break us. Broken pots, cracked pots, have crevices whereby the love flows through. God might break us, to love us, to change us, and to reorient us. He's that good. Idols will never love you enough to break you. Secondly, you know, we, we, we read about Jesus coming into the temple and driving out uh, the false worship that was there. Well, Jesus himself, because of our false worship, was driven outside of the city and sacrificed. He was driven outside of the city because of our propensity to worship other things, other people, other, uh, well, whatever our particular bent is. And he bore the wrath of God. He bore the penalty of our false affection and our false worship. Because he did that for us, he reorients and changes the way in which we think about our lives, about our sin, and about those things which will give us life. Jesus Christ died to give us life. No idol will die for you. None, ever. And because of that, they must be smashed. They must be done away with. And we can have the confidence today that our God loves us enough 
That, not, that, that Jesus died for us, that he made atonement for our false worship and our, and our seeking after idols. He certainly did that. But he is also active in us now to break us and to break the idols uh, that we would seek after that would kill us, cause us trouble, be barbs in our eyes and thorns in our flesh. 